Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast extra from Nature, hosted by me, Jeff Marsh. Towards the end of the 18th century, in a district of South London called Clapham, a curious man takes a solitary walk. He begins late at night and sticks to the middle of the road in a careful bid to avoid interaction with anyone else. He takes the same route every night for 25 years. During the day, he makes some of the greatest scientific breakthroughs of his time. He was the first to accurately measure the density of the Earth and the first to decipher the composition of water. But he's uncredited for most of it because he always shunned the spotlight. This man is Henry Cavendish and he's been retrospectively diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, a type of autism. It was unheard of in the 18th century, but diagnosed at higher rates than ever today. There are many on the autism spectrum who, like Henry Cavendish, shape the world around us, and we as a society should appreciate their value and help them flourish. That's according to Steve Silberman in his recently published book, Neurotribes. I was actually on a boat in Alaska with more than 100 computer programmers, and There was a guy on the boat who had invented Perl, which was one of the first open-source programming languages. And right before we got back into port, I asked him if I could interview him at home. And he said, oh, sure, uh, I should tell you, we have an autistic daughter. And then a couple of months later, I was writing about another technologically adept family in Silicon Valley. And uh, I asked the sister-in-law of the woman I was profiling if I could come interview her at home. And she said, "Uh, yes, I should tell you, we have an autistic daughter. And that struck me as an odd coincidence because at that point, like most people, I believe that autism was a very, very rare condition. I didn't know much about autism beyond Rain Man. And I ended up writing an article in 2001 called The Geek Syndrome about people with autistic traits in Silicon Valley. And that marked the beginning of my interest. And 15 years later, you've written a colorful history of this fascinating condition. Yes, in part because actually I felt that I'd missed a much larger story by focusing on the rising number of diagnoses in high-tech communities specifically, which was in part that families were struggling with the loss of services for their children once their children, uh, quote-unquote, aged out of access to services after high school. That was a more pressing human issue than whether or not, you know, vaccines or GMOs or Wi-Fi or whatever the alleged cause of the week of autism is. So when did psychiatrists begin to cotton on to this condition in an academic way? That's one of the interesting things is that in uh, the 1930s, in the late 1930s, 
Hans Asperger in Vienna, discovered what we now call the autism spectrum. He saw autism as a very broad and inclusive condition with diverse and colorful manifestations that ranged from children who couldn't speak to chatty professors of astronomy. Asperger was extremely prescient in recognizing autism as a lifelong condition that requires support from parents and teachers and the community over the course of the whole lifespan. Unfortunately, his work was buried after World War II by the man who would go on to become the world's leading authority on autism, Leo Connor, an American child psychiatrist. And Leo Connor had a very different view of autism than Hans Asperger did. Connor's view was that autism was a very, very rare form of what he called infantile psychosis. And eventually he would decide that it was triggered by bad parenting and, you know, quote-unquote refrigerator mothers, which was nonsense. But his view, because he was the world's leading authority and because he got the credit for discovering autism, even though Asperger had discovered it before him, his view prevailed for decades. And it's not just academic, is it, these squabbles over um, diagnosis? What impact do these discussions have on the lives of autistic people? That's the thing. Uh, in the case of Connor and Asperger, it was not just a struggle for who gets the credit for discovering autism. Because they had such radically different views of what autism is, specifically because Connor would go on to blame parents his recommended treatment for autism was to put the child in an institution and for the parents to move on with their lives. And so two generations of autistic children at least vanished into asylums. And it's not like they were put in, you know, on autism wards or something. There were no such thing. They ended up in psych wards or in uh, state institutions for quote-unquote adult retardates. So the children became invisible and they, were, they became adults in these institutions that didn't even understand the nature of their condition. Meanwhile, the parents were cautioned not to talk about their children because it would subject them to the social stigma of having caused autism in their children. And then that all changed when the parents' movement came along and said, this is nonsense that parents cause autism. Genetic researchers made scientific breakthroughs that proved that autism was primarily genetic. And also, Lorna Wing came along and changed the criteria for the diagnosis of autism so that they became much broader and much more inclusive. And that's what happened in the late 80s and early 90s when the number of diagnoses started going up. But today, the, the problem of diagnosis has been essentially cracked, right? Yes, and uh, one of the really interesting later developments that I talk just briefly about in my book is that, you know, in America, the, the so-called Bible of psychiatry is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM. And for the first time in DSM-5, which is the current edition, autistic people themselves had input into the formulation of the diagnostic criteria. So it's no longer just clinicians you know, viewing autism through their lenses of various theoretical constructs. But now autistic people themselves had input through an organization called the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network that communicated with the DSM subcommittee that developed the autism criteria. And so the criteria now are much more accurate 
than they had been in previous editions. Now, even though we hear about the possible causes of autism on an almost daily basis in the press, your book sort of avoids this altogether, doesn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, in a sense, I feel that society has been obsessing over the causes of autism at the expense of doing what we really should be doing, which is to create social structures that make the lives of autistic people and their families easier. And this is something that the National Autistic Society in England is very good about. And they focus a lot on adult services uh, and on providing you know, support throughout the whole lifespan. People in England knew early on that autistic children became autistic teenagers who became autistic adults, and they would require support throughout the whole lifespan. In America, people have been obsessing for you know, several decades now about, you know, is it vaccines and, you know, now is it GMOs? But all of those debates are about a very thin layer of possible increase in true incidence of autism on top of this gigantic iceberg of more diagnoses and higher prevalence estimates that my book is really focuses on. I don't talk much about possible causes of autism in my book, in part because they change every week. It's time we get over that and start doing what we should be doing, which is building a better, safer, more secure society for autistic people and their families. The question of what to do with a person once they've been diagnosed as on the autistic spectrum, the outlook started off quite bleak, didn't it? Yes. Well, you know, in Hans Asperger's time, the response of society to uh, autistic people was to attempt to exterminate them in the name of eugenics to flush, you know, autism out of the human gene pool. So society's first response was, you know, the worst possible response. Then, you know, under Leo Connor, what happened was autistic children were, were put in institutions for the rest of their lives, and obviously they did not thrive in these institutions. They were often warehoused with adult psychotics uh, or people with profound intellectual disability, and um, they were not given the special kinds of educational support that they need, obviously. Uh, they were often subjected to experimental treatments because autism was considered so bizarre that the children were not even really regarded as human. So psychiatrists had sort of free reign to try everything, from electroconvulsive shock to daily doses of LSD. What happened to these children who eventually became adults in institutions was confused with the natural course of autism. So autistic children were considered to be unteachable, and that's because they were unteachable if they were sitting on a psych ward in a straitjacket. Um, and it's not until really the 1980s and 90s that uh, parents you know, stopped believing that they were the cause of autism, as the most trusted authorities had been telling them for decades, took basically their children's fate in their own hands and started advocating for them. But then, unfortunately, you know, the, that energy of the parents' movement got diverted into this rancorous argument about vaccines that dominated uh, the world conversation about autism for so long. What would you say were the main considerations then in, in making an environment in which people on the spectrum can thrive in education and throughout later life? Well, obviously, if you're going to hire someone with autism, 
you don't hire them because they're a real people person, as they say in America. You know, it's you hire them because they're incredibly good at what they do and incredibly focused. And so uh, there's a company called Specialistern, which helps software companies hire autistic programmers and people who check uh, programs for, for bugs. And, for instance, when they interview them, they don't, you know, expect an autistic person to charm an interviewer with their, you know, incredibly adept and suave personal skills. They have them do things like build Lego Mindstorm robots that do really cool stuff. That's a skill set that comes really naturally to some autistic people. And so we have to look at how we hire people and to get beyond the notion that the only valuable employer is one who is charming and a, a quote-unquote good team player. What was kind of heartening in the book was that a lot of autistic people now in the dawn of the, the internet and you know more awareness of the condition, they've become activists themselves and they're almost speaking on their own behalf for a lot of these issues. Yes, exactly. It turns out that the internet is like a natural communication medium for autistic people. They do a lot better in online communication because they're not distracted by trying to process facial expressions and all the subtle social signals that non-autistic people, who, by the way, autistic people have dubbed neurotypicals, which is a very witty, you know, sort of inversion of the diagnostic uh, lens onto so-called normal people. Autistic people have created communities online that have allowed them to share details about their lives and realize that they have common struggles and common challenges and that they can help each other and that they're also angry, understandably so, by how they have been mistreated and marginalized and excluded and bullied. You know, there have been a number of studies in the last few years that show how the majority of autistic children suffer from very serious bullying when they're young and that that then contributes to chronic anxiety in adulthood. There are events like Autscape, uh, which happens in Europe. I've, in fact, I believe Autscape is happening now, which is an event that is run by autistic people for autistic people. And it's like a natural environment where autistic people can interact with each other at their own pace and uh, in an environment that is free of sort of alarming sensory overloading input like fluorescent lights and loud noises. I actually spent several days at an event in America called Autreat that is basically the American equivalent of Autscape in Europe. When I came out of Autreat, the so-called real world, you know, that is set up for non-autistic people to thrive in, seems so loud and, you know, <laughs> sensorily overwhelming. And that, that was a very instructive experience. Embrace the neurodiversity. That's another term that came up a lot in your book. Exactly, yeah. And neurodiversity is not, you know, some people say, well, it's, you know, it's just a political position or something. It's not. It's, it's a living fact, like biodiversity in a rainforest. And like biodiversity, neurodiversity may contribute to resilience and vigor in human society over long periods of time as we face changing conditions in the world. So it could be that having a diversity of human cognitive styles will prove to be humanity's saving grace as we deal with the challenges that are coming up in the 21st century. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 